Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and joining me today is Dr. Angelina Crown, a breast surgeon that specializes in oncoplastic surgery from Providence Swedish in Seattle, Washington. Today, we're talking about breast cancer and what you need to know about it. We'll discuss the epidemiology of breast cancer, equity in care, and update you on the newest information on breast cancer screenings and surgery. So let's get started by welcoming our guest today. Hello, Dr. Crown. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Angelina Crown, and I'm a breast surgical oncologist at Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle. My primary interests in breast cancer surgery are really looking at how we can optimize both oncologic outcomes as well as aesthetic outcomes for patients as they get treated for this very challenging diagnosis. And I have a lot of research interests looking at young breast cancer popular, young breast cancer patients and particularly how we balance their treatments as well as their kind of long-term goals for their lives because we see that patient outcomes have been improving significantly over the last couple of decades and we expect that many of them will have a completely normal life afterwards and so we want to make sure that any goals they have including potentially fertility are addressed and preserved for the future so that something that if it was you know something they wanted to do in their life that they can do that and so i have a, a lot of research interests in management of pregnancy associated breast cancer oncofertility as well as how we manage um, breast cancer after initiation of systemic therapy I became interested in breast cancer surgery as a resident. Um, so originally, I actually thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon. And I was doing my breast rotation um, actually with no you know, specific interest. I just thought I had to kind of check the box of uh, getting that out of the way in order to you know, complete graduation requirements. But I found that I just loved the patients. And one of the things about surgery is that typically that relationship with a patient is pretty short. Um, you meet a patient, they have a problem, we have a potential solution for them, they choose to, to to have surgery, we perform the surgery, we see them after surgery, hopefully they're fixed, and then they don't need us anymore. And what was different about breast cancer was that patients would need us, they would be really, really scared, would be able to give them hope and kind of help them walk through what their treatment was going to look like. At the time of surgery, the, the surgeons I trained with, they were very passionate about ensuring the best possible aesthetic outcomes while also taking care of the cancer. And seeing the patients afterwards was really inspiring. They were, they were so relieved to be done with surgery and they were really happy with how things looked. And that really left a mark on me. And as we would leave that room for a post-op, we would then see a, a five-year follow-up patient. And so it's that relationship that was developed with those patients over time and the ability to see them back again and see them you know, show them or that they show you pictures of their grandchildren. And it's it's just really amazing to sort of get to have a, a more prolonged uh, exposure, uh, or not exposure, a more um, long-term relationship with them. Well, you've already sold me, I have to say, because I, I had breast cancer years ago before I came to Providence. And it was one of those I had the, you know, I had the um, mammogram. They said, oh, we think we caught something. They did a second. And the next thing I knew, I had this email, like in a my chart from a surgeon scheduling me never met him, showed up, removed the the mass and was like, Hey, you'll be fine because we just got it all. And I never saw him again. It, well, that's not true. I had an infection after the surgery, but I never saw him. Again. I, I couldn't even tell you his name and what a crazy situation to go through, right? To hear, Oh, you have cancer. Oh, we're going to remove it. And then good luck. So you've already sold me. I think it's amazing. I love what you're doing. And I think, I think the, the audience is absolutely going to fall just as in love with you as I am already. I don't think people realize we hear so much about breast cancer, but I don't think we really understand like the incident rate of breast cancer has changed so much over time. Why, why do you think that is? And, and what are we starting to see? Yeah. So, you know, breast cancer is a very common um, entity now. 
uh, one in eight women will encounter a breast cancer diagnosis in their lifetime, so that's about 12% risk. And that risk is modulated by multiple factors, including family history, hormonal exposures, potential environmental exposures. Um, and so all of these things um, kind of come together to give an individual patient her risk. And um, one of the things I'm really passionate about is actually risk assessments. And you can actually sit down in a doctor's office or actually you can even do it online yourself. There are risk calculator models. So there's an IBIS model, there's a Tyrochusic model, which is the same thing as an IBIS model, but a different name of it, and the Gale model, and, and multiple others that you can use. And you can actually fill in your own information, including you know how old you were when you got your first period, how many pregnancies you've had, and other pieces of data that the calculator then puts together and spits out a number of what your personal risk might be. But what we've seen over time is that there's actually been significant changes. So in 2023, Pre-Cancer Society is estimating that just over 297,000 new invasive breast cancer cases will be diagnosed in this year alone and almost 56,000 cases of DCIS, which is the kind of immediate precursor, pre-invasive type of cancer diagnosis, will also be diagnosed this year. And you know, over the last decade, we've seen that this breast cancer incidence has been increasing by about 0.3 to 0.5% per year. And that, or that increase is obviously concerning when we see it, but we really think that it's mostly attributed to improvements in screening and detection rather than a true increase in the rate of the disease. And, you know, there, there have been a lot of changes historically. So um, the rates of ductal carcinoma in situ and invasive cancer both increased sharply in the 1980s when there was rapid uptake of screening mammography, because that's really when that kind of was introduced as a, as a technique and people kind of immediately gravitated toward it. And we started detecting more earlier um, cases of breast cancer. And then in the early 2000s, we actually saw a dip because there was a big study that showed that there was an increased risk of breast cancer associated with taking postmenopausal, um, or sorry, hormone replacement therapy. And so uh, once that data was known, then people kind of stopped taking those medications at, at, at as high of rates, and we saw that some of the breast cancer risk was reduced with that. But then, you know, nowadays with this most recent decade, we see that most of the breast cancers that are being diagnosed are actually estrogen positive or estrogen receptor positive cancers. And so based on that kind of hormonal status, we think that perhaps some of the factors associated with that increased rate of seeing that type of cancer, particularly as hormonal factors like being a little bit older at the time of a first birth, having being slightly overweight, a physical inactivity and possibly alcohol consumption. These are all things that have been kind of tossed around as potential explanations for why we're seeing kind of more of the estrogen sensitive tumors. You know, you mentioned earlier when you were kind of giving us a, an overview that you, you deal with cancer in pregnancies, but also in younger women. Are we seeing a, a decrease in age or an early onset or, or what is that looking like from like a median age perspective? So the median age is approximately 63, fluctuates just a little bit from year to year, and about 10% of breast cancers are diagnosed in women under 45. So when you think about those giant numbers we're talking about, about overall incidence, that's a lot of really young women with breast cancer. And so there was actually a shift in the, the U.S. Preventative Task Force guidelines for initiation of screening. They actually reduced the, the age at which they wanted to initiate screening to age 40. And part of that, I think, is in response to the fact that we kind of see this consistent group of very young women with breast cancer, and so trying to catch them a little bit earlier, and also due to some differences that we see between different race and ethnicity groups. So for example, black women have a much higher rate of having an early diagnosis prior to age 45 relative to white women. So as also sort of an attempt to uh, decrease some of the 
disparities in healthcare outcomes that we see related to breast cancer outcomes between race and ethnicity groups. I think some of that data also informed that recent change. Can you talk to me a little bit about the different types of breast cancer? I know there's so many out there that, and I don't know that anybody really thinks about it. You just hear breast cancer and that's all you think about, but there are different variations, yes? Yeah, that's completely true. So the way that all of us in the breast cancer field think about it is we think about three different receptors. So there's the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the HER2 uh, receptor. And so Uh, These are universally tested, or at least they should be universally tested, on any breast cancer specimen. And it informs a lot about the biology of the cancer and what treatments we would consider to be effective for those particular cancers. So, you know, most cancers uh, are going to be estrogen sensitive. So, you know, we were talking about the incidence earlier. We were kind of seeing that as you get older, you're more likely to have estrogen sensitive tumors. And so what that indicates to us is that the estrogen hormone receptor is sort of like an Achilles heel that we can target on the cancer to help prevent it from being able to come back in the future. So um, if, if people have a hormone-sensitive tumor that is not overexpressing the HER2 receptor, then we use anti-estrogen treatments as part of their treatment after surgery. Those treatments are highly effective at helping to prevent recurrence. Similarly, the progesterone receptor, like estrogen, is another hormonal receptor Um, And that just gives us a little bit more of an insight, again, into the biology of the cancer. So you see an estrogen-sensitive tumor that's progesterone negative, then those tend to have um, the higher risk of being a little bit more biologically aggressive. And so they may be more likely to benefit from chemotherapy. And we actually have genetic assays now that we can send on these tumors to help prognosticate what the risk of recurrence might be for a particular woman, as well as is there a benefit to giving chemotherapy in that particular case. Finally, HER2 is a is a very targeted. The HER2 uh, receptor really changes how we treat breast cancer. So HER2 overexpression can make the initial cancer appear much more biologically aggressive. Prior to 2005, when the FDA approved trastuzumab, which is a direct antibody for the HER2 receptor, we really didn't know how to treat that particular variant of cancer that overexpressed this HER2. And so with the advent of, of uh, Trastuzumab, which is more commonly you know, known as receptin, as well as other related drugs, we now have excellent treatments for HER2-positive breast cancer. And so, again, identifying sort of what makes these cancers tick, whether it's hormonal sensitivity or perhaps HER2, then we can really target the treatments appropriately. So we're not going to give perceptin slash trastuzumab to a patient who doesn't overexpress HER2. It would be a useless treatment. Similarly, if we know that a, a tumor is HER2-positive and we don't treat that, then even if it's estrogen sensitive and we kind of try to target that estrogen pathway, there's a there's a high risk of the cancer being able to come back in the future. The final type of breast cancer, so we, you know, we kind of talk about the ERPR positive, HER2 negatives, we talk about the HER2 positives, and then we talk about triple negative. And triple negative is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's estrogen negative, progesterone negative, and HER2 negative. And so because it doesn't have any of these targets, really the the backbone of systemic treatment for triple negative breast cancer is chemotherapy. More recently, um, there was a a lot of uh, clinical trial data that demonstrated that the addition of immunotherapy can also be uh, a useful approach to triple negative breast cancer. And the use of pembrolizumab, which is approved for uh, high-risk triple negative breast cancers, improves the rate of pathologic complete response and reduces the risk of recurrence. So as a result, that's, enough. that's often the immunotherapy is also added to triple negative breast cancer treatment. 
I'm going to assume that with any type of breast cancer, the earlier the detection, the better. And obviously, the earlier the detection is really going to be most likely, I would think, from screenings. And you mentioned, you know, you can do screenings, you can do online screenings, you know, even answer kind of an online Q&A. But there's things like genetic testing, there's mammograms. How how have screening recommendations changed over the years? And what are the best types of screenings to do? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'd say for sure, everyone needs to be getting a mammogram no later than age 40. That's what most of the guidelines will say. There, there is some variation. There are some, you know, variants that say 45. But I, I would say that, you know, the American College of Radiology really encourages starting at age 40. And now the U.S. Preventive Task Force does as well. But as far as, you know, these other things, like the, the risk assessment, so that's something that I think has in recent years become sort of a more prominent tool that we can use. And I think many people still don't know about it. And it's something that you can do, you know, with your primary care doctor, with a breast specialist. You know, we actually have a, a high-risk screening program within our breast surgery department here at Swedish. So we have a lot of patients who are call, you know, requesting one of these assessments. And it's really easy to do with these online calculators. And what, what that helps us do is that if your lifetime risk of breast cancer, according to one of these calculators, is over 20%, then there is a benefit potentially to also initiating breast MRI. And breast MRI is an extremely sensitive form of breast imaging that we have. The reason we don't like to do it in everyone is, one, it's an MRI, so, you know, it takes a while, and so people don't really enjoy getting MRIs most of the time. Two, it's a little bit oversensitive. So while it's, you know, considered very sensitive, it's not specific, meaning we get a lot of false positives. And so we worry about, you know, screening fatigue, meaning that, you know, somebody gets an MRI, there's a couple of things that light up. We biopsy, it's negative. The same thing happens the next year and the next year and the next year. And they say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not even gonna get my mammograms because you guys never find anything. You keep putting me through all these procedures. And so, especially when a test, you know, takes a lot out of a patient to do it because a lot of people can have concerns with claustrophobia. And again, it's a time consuming and also an expensive test. And so if we don't think that it's going to add significant benefit, then we don't necessarily want to add it to someone's, you know, recommended screening. And so, um, you know, currently the, the guidelines suggest that if the lifetime risk is over 20% using these family history models, there is a potential benefit. And so that's the population of patients that we really focus on encouraging them to get the, the breast MRIs or at least consider them. The other population is genetic carriers. You mentioned genetic testing. So these risk assessments can also kind of help us to figure out, well, perhaps we should get genetic testing on this person. Like, you know, if they have five female relatives on one side of the family that have all had breast cancer, then that may be someone that we say, hey, you know, there may be some hereditary component here and there may be some hereditary risk. And so if we do genetic testing, then we can also kind of counsel people about when they should initiate screening and what form of screening they should get. So a BRCA carrier, for example, should start bilateral breast screening MRIs at age 25, and that should be done annually. And then at age 30, we add mammograms. And the reason that we start with MRIs rather than mammograms is that typically women in their 20s have very, very dense breasts. And so MRIs are a better screening modality than, in, than a mammogram uh, for these high-risk patients. You just you just mentioned the BRCA gene. BRCA? I never say it quite right. But we, we started hearing a lot about that, the gene mutation, I don't know, in the last maybe five to 10 years. What role has that played in breast cancer? And um, what kind of medical guidance do you typically offer people around that? So for women who are diagnosed with a pathogenic BRCA mutation, and we find a lot of women coming to our office with, with this because their family member got diagnosed with cancer, had genetic testing as part of their workup. So the American Society of Breast Cancer Surgeons actually recommends universal genetic testing for anyone diagnosed with breast cancer. And so 
from that result, you know, then they'll tell other family members and then they'll get tested. It's kind of like this cascading effect of testing. So we'll find people who come to, to the office with a newly diagnosed BRCA mutation. So we talk to them about screening. So, you know, the MRIs hopefully starting at age 25, but most of the people are going to be diagnosed after age 25. So, you know, they haven't started that yet. So we have them start that. If they're over 30, then we have them also do the mammograms and we try to stagger those every six months so that we kind of have some form of imaging you know, to, so it's not just like once a year, we have something every six months. And that kind of makes us feel that we have better eyes on them. And then we also do clinical exam. But the, the other things that, you know, we have to worry about is whatever genetic mutation they may have, it may be associated with other types of breast or other types of cancers. So for example, you know, BRCA mutations also cluster with ovarian and fallopian tube cancers. BRCA2 also clusters with prostate and melanoma cancers. Um, and so we also learn about other cancers they may be at risk for and can kind of set up the right types of screening in order to help them manage those cancer risks that are completely independent from their breast cancer risk, which is what you know my department focuses on. The other thing that's interesting about you know the BRCA mutation is that if you are a BRCA mutation carrier and you have um, an invasive cancer that's considered high risk, then you would also potentially qualify for a new medication called Olaparib, which is a, a medication that's a, a PARP inhibitor. And so it specifically works in BRCA-mutated cancers and improves uh, survival. And so for you know, women who have this particular mutation, we know that the, the BRCA pathway is involved in the, the pathogenesis of their cancer and therefore would be vulnerable to this particular type of medication that would otherwise not be effective in someone who has a sporadic breast cancer. So genetic testing now is not only to help us kind of counsel women about their risks moving forward, but also can inform their treatment. The other thing about being a genetic carrier is, particularly for BRCA mutation carriers, they may have a risk of contralateral cancer, meaning developing a completely separate breast cancer on the other side that can be as high as 50 to 70%, depending on different factors. So in that kind of situation, someone who was originally saying, you know, I really want to save my breast and have a lumpectomy, they may say, you know what, I, I think what I really want to do is actually have both of my breasts removed with a bilateral mastectomy, so I reduce that risk of seeing a second cancer as much as possible. So it, it's all just more information for, for people to be able to kind of work through to decide what the best treatment for them might be. Well, it sounds like screening is so important. And I think, you know, we'd be remiss, especially as Providence, who focuses so much on the poor and vulnerable to, to not talk about what, you know, what is access to healthcare and screening? What role does that play for people? So it plays a huge role. So we know that, you know, if you a screen detected cancer has a much better prognosis than one that's detected clinically, meaning that it was palpated by the patient themselves or by a clinician. And so not being able to get high quality screening is a is a big problem. Because again, like like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, the earlier we find things, the, the better the outcomes are going to be and the fewer the treatments that we have to actually give to achieve a cure. And so it's kind of a cascading effect. We know that there are also you know, stark differences in outcomes between race and ethnicities. So while breast cancer incidence is higher among white women, black women have the highest mortality, 40% higher mortality. It's a crazy number. And, you know, there are so many factors that go into that. You know, we talk about 
anesthetic load, we talk about bias, we talk about access to healthcare, we talk about screening, we talk about timeliness of care. So time between getting your screen that shows a cancer, getting your biopsy and starting treatment. We talk about access to, you know, chemotherapy and radiation treatments and, you know, financial implications of all of these. And there, there are so many different factors that go into some of the disparities that we see, but certainly access to care is a huge factor and one where we really do have an opportunity to kind of improve that. Let's let's talk about that. I mean, what can be done to reduce health disparities, especially around br- breast cancer care and, and really improve access to quality care for those populations that may be either at higher risk or underserved? So I think one of the things that, that particularly with young patients who are very likely to kind of be missed, I would say, is you know, issues with transportation, issues with childcare. You know, can we extend hours for mammography to not be between business hours? Can we get extended hours a couple days a week so that people, you know, can come after work, before work? You know, there's financial aid, there's just, you know, helping people with transportation, HopeLink and, and what other resources you can gather to get people to their appointments. So, you know, there's there's so many barriers to access to care that actually have a lot of kind of social implications and you know, it's, it's a really challenging problem to solve. And, I, you know, I, I do a lot of health equity work with uh, Kathy Ann Joseph, who's at NYU. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a challenge because we can identify all these factors, but actually formulating solutions that you can actually implement and do are really challenging. And so one of the things that they've done at NYU, which I, I think is a model that hopefully can get reproduced across the country and here at Providence even, is a, a lay uh, navigator program. And so it basically has people go into sort of lower resource communities. They meet with various women and they help them get their mammograms. They kind of help sort of identify what their barriers to care are and in a personalized way, like, okay, you need help with childcare, let's help you with childcare. You need help with transportation, let's help you with transportation. And so it's a very targeted approach to kind of increase access. And what they found is that they got so many more women coming in for mammograms and actually completing biopsies that were recommended, and then more timely care. And so I think that if you kind of start at that individual level, you actually have people whose job it is to get these people the care that they need. That's one strategy to, to do. What about insurance, right? We talk about access to care, but there's also access to paying for care, right? I mean, let's talk a little bit about the impact of health coverage and health or health insurance coverage on breast cancer care specifically. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of research being done in the breast cancer space on financial toxicity. And it is extremely expensive. Even with good insurance, it's still extremely expensive. And so, you know, one of the things that we do when we have a patient who's uninsured and they come to our office is we help them get insurance with Medicaid or some other source to help defray those costs. And we also have a charity care program to kind of help people who really can't pay so that we, we have as little financial impact, although we know we're always going to have a financial impact, but as little as possible. But you're right. So, you know, with access to insurance, uh, insurance is kind of the key to getting your care. Um, and we do see differences in outcomes based on insurance. So people on government insurance tend to have worse outcomes oncologically compared to people with private insurance. They have less access to services like, you know, oncofertility. So we know that chemotherapy is associated with infertility. So if you're a 32-year-old woman and you need chemotherapy and you didn't freeze your eggs, it's going to be really, really hard for you to get pregnant down the road. And so if you have government insurance and you don't have some money saved away, $10,000 to go freeze your eggs, that's not going to get paid for. As opposed to private insurance, if you, if you work for someone like Amazon or Microsoft, they have elective egg freezing that's covered as an insurance benefit. And so there's huge differences in, in what services you can access. 
not so much for actual like can you get breast surgery you can get that we'll do charity care if you need it you'll get your breast surgery but you probably you know won't have as much flexibility with what kind of you know reconstructive pathway you might want to go to what surgeon you want to see and and sort of some of these other things like you know possibly massage therapy for after surgery you know access to pt how many visits does your insurance authorize you know local fertility all of these other services that that are really important for your long-term kind of well-being recovery from this whole diagnosis but may not be covered by sort of government insurance can the same thing be said for clinical trials i know clinical trials are, are so critical to kind of the success here are we seeing disparities in breast cancer clinical trials as well Oh, absolutely. So the one that I find the most frustrating is the Keynote 522 study. So this was a, a randomized trial that basically proved pembrolizumab is effective in triple negative breast cancer and improves the rate of pathologic complete response. This trial, it only had 5% of its population as black women. And black women are the most likely population to develop triple negative breast cancer. And for a new treatment that is designed to treat a particular type of breast cancer, to not include very many people that are most likely to develop this disease is so frustrating. And especially, you know, it's immunotherapy. And so there's all sorts of different side effects you can get, you know, ranging from adrenal gland not working and having something called adrenal failure. You can have thyroid problems, you can have colitis, there's, you know, any number of things that can happen because it's basically ramping up your immune system to help fight cancer. But by the way, it can accidentally fight you as well. And so if we don't have these patients represented in the trial, we can't counsel them as well. And, and we don't know exactly, you know, what all we should be looking out for. So maybe this population had this side effect, but perhaps this other population has this other side effect. And we didn't really see that very much in the trial because we didn't have patients from that population in it. So yes, there are huge disparities, and that's based across race, ethnicity, language barriers. There's there's all sorts of problems with access to clinical trials, and it's especially upsetting because you know the National Conference on Cancer Network says the best care that a patient can get is in a clinical trial, and so if they can't access those clinical trials, they're not enrolled in those clinical trials because of bias from you know the people who are running the clinical trials. Or they live in an area where the hospital can't afford to run these clinical trials because it's expensive to run clinical trials then you're, you're at a major disadvantage of being able to access those. You know, I don't know if people know this or not, but Providence and Swedish actually do almost as much in the research and clinical trial spaces like the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic. It's amazing. And I know that you guys are working on clinical trials around breast cancer at Providence Swedish, correct? Oh, yeah. So um, I'm actually the director of, of research for the breast surgery division. So we have a ton of clinical trials that we've opened. So we have a lot of systemic clinical trials. So that's kind of the medical oncology space. But what I'm most proud of is that we have a lot of local regional trials. So, you know, we have recently opened the HERO trial, which is looking at omission of radiation for lower risk HER2 positive breast cancer. Because again, for HER2 positive breast cancers, we know that most of the biology of that cancer is regulated by the, the HER2 pathway. And so perhaps while we would normally give radiation in the setting of, of breast conservation, perhaps these patients don't need it because they aren't, because the, the HER2 pathway is, is already targeted and has been so effective that the radiation isn't adding any benefit beyond the HER2 therapy plus just removal of the cancer. So that's the question that that clinical trial is asking. We also have a clinical trial called the Taylor-RT trial. This is a trial looking at omission of axillary dissection in node-positive women. And so, again, trying to minimize morbidity associated with our treatments. And the famous Italian breast surgeon named Umberto Veronesi, who, who passed away, who was credited with saying, the goal of breast cancer 
to be the maximum efficacious rather than maximum tolerated treatment. And, and meaning we really should be looking at targeted treatments for breast cancer and seeing what individual treatments are going to be effective for the person sitting in front of you rather than just throwing the kitchen sink at them and saying, well, this sometimes works. It might work on you. Let's do it. So being really measured in, in what treatments we recommend. So, you know, axillary dissection is a surgery that removes all of the lymph nodes in level one and two of the axilla, and it is recommended in some cases, but it, it comes at a cost of approximately 20% risk of lymphedema, which is chronic swelling of the arm. You pair that with radiation because many node-positive women, if they're having axillary infection, are also going to have radiation. Now you're talking about up to 40 to 60% risk of lymphedema. So that is a huge morbidity to bestow upon someone if you're not totally sure that that treatment's actually going to help them. And so, you know, these clinical trials that we're running in the local regional space are really looking at what is like who's actually benefiting from all of these treatments that we have and who can we maybe spare some of those negative side effects by not giving it to them because they don't actually benefit from it. So the, the Taylor RT study is, is basically looking at, again, biology. So it's for her two negative cancers, but using another genetic assay called Oncotype to say, okay, if you have a low Oncotype score, then again, your your biology is one that perhaps doesn't need to benefit from radiation. So we have that one, and um, we're actually in the process of opening the TAXIS trial, which is actually an international site. And once we get it open, which is hopefully going to be in the next week or two, we're going to be the only international, or the only U.S. site in the international trial, which is very exciting. And this study is also looking at omission of axillary dissection in node-positive women who may have even higher risk cancers. But we know that many of these women are gonna get radiation, so the question is, can we omit the axillary surgery component of it, meaning removing all of the lymph nodes, just take out the targeted known positive one and a couple of other ones just to make sure that there's not a ton of them there, and then give them radiation. And so we're randomizing women to eat this selective uh, axillary surgery, um, which is removal of the known positive lymph node and a couple sentinel lymph nodes versus removing all of them. And so that's a, an exciting trial also, which again, moving toward this goal of you know minimum efficacious um, rather than maximum tolerated. That sounds exciting. It's a little nerdy too, but I like it. <laughs> I'm going to pivot here a little bit and because you talked very early on about kind of developing long-term relationships and really getting to know the patient. I think the thing that we don't talk about a lot when we talk about cancer and even like reconstructive surgery is the mental health aspect, right? The, the self-esteem issues, the, just the feeling of, you know, I have cancer. What is that? How do you as a, as a clinician deal with that, that side of it? That part often can actually be the hardest part. And I, I warn people that that part often sneaks up on you right after surgery. So getting to surgery, you've probably had a bunch of imaging, you've had biopsies, you've met with a million different people. You're, you're kind of just racing from one thing to the next. And it's like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And then you get to surgery and now you've got like nothing to do for several weeks while you kind of wait for the pathology results. Or in the case of mastectomy, you might be there for four to six weeks, kind of just not able to continue with whatever the next treatment is because you're still recovering from surgery. And, and that's a time when a lot of these thoughts can kind of creep in and, and sort of that the trauma of the whole experience kind of catches up with you. And so I, I spent a lot of time kind of counseling patients that recovery from surgery, in my opinion, is actually less of a physical recovery. I think the physical recovery most patients find is easier than they're anticipating. But that emotional recovery can, can be a little bit harder because there's all sorts of really unpleasant, un, you know, unwelcome questions that kind of enter our minds in that period of time. And there's no great answers. Like, we, I can't answer why did this happen? I can't answer, you know, like, is there something I could have done that? The answer is no, there's nothing you did. It's bad luck, whether it's, you know, a, a genetic mutation that you carry from your family, whether it's a sporadic breast cancer, which is the most common thing we see. 
it's just bad luck. And there's no individual thing you could have done differently. You know, it's one of those things that there's so many factors associated with how a breast cancer can develop that, that we just don't have control over it. And so I actually kind of talk a little bit about sort of how cancers form. So, you know, they all start as normal cells. And so over the course of, you know, millions of cell divisions, we accumulate mistakes in the genetic code of that individual cell. And so it's kind of like winning at a game of lotto. You make the right combination of mistakes, you escape the body's regulatory pathways of growth, and now you can just grow all the time. So it's a really lucky cell in an unlucky person is kind of how I, I typically describe it. And, you know, all of the, the feelings of, you know, how is it going to look? And, you know, I'm, I'm just like nervous about everything. Those are those are hard questions, and one of the reasons I really like oncoplastic surgery and I really like nipple sparing mastectomy when people choose to have a mastectomy is that we kind of restore their their external appearance to as much as you know we can from from precancer, so that you know when they're looking at themselves in the mirror, they're not seeing an unsightly scar that reminds them every day that they went through this traumatic thing. Instead, it's you know something that they have to like lift their breast up and look underneath to kind of notice was there. I would much rather have them have that so that they're not kind of facing these questions on a daily basis, but. We have a lot of support groups. We have dedicated social workers in our department that kind of help connect people to resources. We have art therapy and music therapy, massage therapy, like all sorts of, you know, different things that can sometimes kind of help people cope with some of the, the feelings that come up. But no matter what, it's really hard. And I, I just kind of encourage them to, to find the people they feel the most comfortable with to be able to share that and talk about it and not try to suppress it. Because what I found is that when people try to suppress it, it just kind of bubbles up later at more inconvenient times, and, and you know maybe we could have helped them earlier. So that, that's a that's a really hard one. Well. You've, you've given us a lot of great content and a lot to think about here. And since you're so amazing, I'm going to do a fun thing we do with some of our docs called Factor Myth, if you're open to it, where I'm just going to ask you a question and you give me the answer. Is it false? Is it true? Is it factor? Is it myth? You, are you, you down to play? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, perfect. Here we go. First question. Breast cancer is always accompanied by a lump. Definitely false. So while we do find breast cancers as lumps, particularly in young patients, and because I specialize in premenopausal breast cancer, I, I get a lot of patients that come to my office with a lump. We actually hope that it's a screen-detected cancer, which usually is not accompanied by a lump because we found it so early that you know the amount of cancer that's present cannot actually form a palpable lump. So that is false. But it, it, if you have a lump, you definitely need to be seen by someone and get breast imaging, 100%. Duly noted. All right. Factor myth, breastfeeding can lower the risk of developing breast cancer. Ah, that is a great one. So for long-term outcomes, true. So we know that breastfeeding in life does reduce our overall long-term risk of breast cancer. However, in young women, during breastfeeding, that is actually between like up to five years after a pregnancy, that is the highest risk time for a young woman to develop breast cancer. And so during pregnancy and up to five years after, and you know, we usually say pregnancy-associated breast cancer, most people will say it's defined as up to one year after pregnancy. But when you look at the actual trends of young women with breast cancer, it's, it's usually in that first five years after pregnancy. So it's actually kind of a, an increased risk factor while you're young, but long-term, it's a, it's a decreased risk factor. And okay. why is that? We don't really know, but the hypothesis is that there's some kind of process that when the breast becomes you know ready to do breastfeeding and as it involutes when you stop breastfeeding that there's different cytokines that are released that can potentially kind of allow abnormal cell growth and we know that since cancers are you know 
basically genetically abnormal cells that started as normal cells, that if you have growth factors around that are, that are allowing abnormal cells to replicate more quickly, they're probably making more mistakes at a higher rate, and then again, kind of statistically becoming more likely to win the game of lotto and become a cancer. Oh, well then that lends itself to the next question, which is, is having a mammogram, can it spread cancer cells? No, it cannot. False. So mammograms have actually exceptionally low doses of radiation these days, and there's no cancer cell spreading. And actually, I get this question all the time in the office, does a biopsy spread cancer? And the answer is no. And there's actually a lot of studies that have looked at, you know, mastectomy specimens. And there's not like when we, you can actually sometimes, depending on the timing between the biopsy and the and a mastectomy, for example, you can actually kind of still see where the, the scar tissue from the biopsy itself was. And there's not cancer cells along that tract. So you cannot spread breast cancer by getting imaging or by doing biopsies or procedures. That's good to know. I had not heard this one, so I'm super interested in the answer. Wearing a bra for too long or sleeping in a bra can cause breast cancer. False. There's no data to support that claim. That just sounds it's uncomfortable not, to me. Well, I would say so for for bras, though. So I will say, particularly when I first started here at Swedish and didn't have a, a really busy uh, breast cancer practice, I, I kind of saw everything. And I'd get a lot of consultations for breast pain. And I will tell you what bras can really help you with is breast pain. So people who have breast pain and have not tried wearing a, a supportive bra, oftentimes that is the, the thing that makes the difference. So bras, if you like wearing them and they're comfortable, go for it. If you don't want to wear a bra, you don't have to wear a bra, but it's not going to impact your cancer risk. But it can potentially help with breast pain. Good to know. Only people assigned female gender at birth can get breast cancer. False. Very false. Um, so men can also develop breast cancer. It's, it's clearly much less common in men. So, you know, it's, it's about 1% of breast cancers are diagnosed in men. So it's, it's an uncommon diagnosis, a very lonely diagnosis. And so I think one of the things that in addition to all of the struggles that just having a breast cancer diagnosis in general present to you, I think also being a man can be particularly lonely because they might feel out of place at some of the support groups that many people find helpful. And, you know, it's, it's kind of considered a, a woman's diagnosis. And so that can kind of also induce some really negative feelings. So it's, it's uncommon, but men with breast masses absolutely need to be evaluated. And, you know, there's actually certain genetic mutations that are kind of higher risk, of, that men are at higher risk that have a breast cancer if they have this genetic mutation. So BRCA2 specifically um, has an elevated risk of, of breast cancer in men. And then other things like Klinefelter syndrome can also have a higher risk of, of breast cancer in men. So it absolutely can happen in men. It's just much, much less common. I don't think this is going to be as easy to answer, but lifestyle factors such as maintaining a healthy weight, limiting alcohol intake, and uh, partaking in uh, diet and healthy exercise can prevent cancer. Yes, I would say overall true. So we know that you know good nutrition and healthy lifestyle, you know, getting your activity in every week, those things are associated with longer or like with better health in general. And we think that, and the studies also show that it's lower risk of recurrence. And so there's a lot of studies right now kind of in, in exercise science looking at, you know, the initiation of, of specific exercise routines versus, you know, whatever a patient would just do on their own, which is the control group, show that there's better outcomes with the lifestyle interventions. So, you know, people will often come to the office and say, well, I, I read all these studies that show that alcohol is associated with breast cancer. And, and yes, you know, you'll find those studies, but most of these studies are all observational studies, meaning that people just kind of get it like, they just exist, they're living their lives, and you kind of see what happens to them. There's no ability to control for things. So 
perhaps, you know, the people in the, in the study that were drinking alcohol were also more likely to be smokers, or they were also more likely perhaps to not be as active, or perhaps they had, instead of kind of having a lot of leafy greens in their diet, they had more, you know, red meats and, and processed fats uh, and, and grains. So, you know, there's so many factors you can't control for that it's difficult to say what exact thing is responsible. But the general advice I give people is that if it seems like it's a good thing for your health, you know, having more leafy greens and being more active and, you know, just trying to be healthy, that that's something that's a good thing. And, you know, obviously behaviors like smoking, we highly discourage that is associated with breast cancer and studies and also other kinds of cancer. But, you know, I think I think everything in moderation is okay. And it's 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 a bigger lifestyle question more so than like one specific thing. I think it makes sense. Well, you're almost done. You're on, you're on the, the way out. Uh, how about deodorants and antiperspirants can cause breast cancer? Well, uh, this is another thing that, you know, you can find studies that can show whatever you want on the show. But there's there's no convincing evidence that deodorants and, and antiperspirants cause breast cancer. All right. Last one. Breast cancer is the most common cancer among women worldwide. That is true, with the exception of skin cancers. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, you, you did amazing. You did amazing. That was good. That was a quick one. I like it. I think we're almost out of time. I want to just give you a chance to wrap up. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want the audience to know or any one takeaway you'd ask them to to leave this show with? Like get your screenings. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say, I, I think the one thing that I'd recommend um, to anyone listening to the show is get a risk assessment and get your screenings. And if you ever have questions, concerns, or you know, need help navigating something, you know, one of the problems that we're having right now is access to breast imaging. And so, because again, I, I, I work with a lot of really, really young women. I, I hear these really sad stories of, you know, I developed this lump eight months ago and I went to my doctor and they said, I'm too young to have breast cancer. And, you know, they ordered some imaging, but it was like scheduled for six months later because the imaging was all backed up. And, you know, that's a story I hear almost every day in my office, and it's infuriating. If you have a concern with your breast, see a breast specialist. So you can literally call our office, and we will have you seen probably by the next day to assess whatever your breast concern is. You know, the, the delays in imaging and, you know, delays of, like, you know, doctors not listening to patients because they're too young to have breast cancer. First of all, no one's too young to have breast cancer. I've had women in their teens come to me with breast cancer. They need to get imaging and it needs to be timely. We can't wait six months. And so if you come see me or one of our PAs or NPs in my office and you know we feel a mass and we're concerned about it, we're gonna get you in for that imaging quickly. So you know, a six month follow up for the thing that you felt is not good enough. You should find a breast specialist to take care of you and advocate for yourself. And it shouldn't be that way, but it is. So that's my best advice. <laughs> it's actually, it's very good advice. I want to thank you, Dr. Crown and everyone listening for joining us on Talk with a Doc today. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit Providence.org. And please remember... The information provided during the program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening, and remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.